It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. And tonight, Poetry Santa Cruz presents a reading by Garrett Ongo and Robin Lisney. Len Anderson, this man right here, will introduce Robin Lisney. Robin Lisney is a really fine poet, and I'm blessed uh, in being in a writing group with her. And I'll tell you, she is excellent at giving feedback on her poems. And uh, I think some of that has to do with her sensitivity. But I imagine that quite a bit of it has to do also with her education. I mean, she has a master of arts, Master of Fine Arts, and a PhD. And uh, so she's she's worked at it. <laughs> and she's written a lot of essays in these programs, and she had to figure out how to say things <laughs> about poetry. And I haven't, myself, I haven't had that kind of education, and so I'm not so great at <laughs> giving feedback on poems. But... Um, and, you know, she's not only a, a poetry, but she's a psychic. And so there is that way in which she is very sensitive, anyway. And that's, I think, a wonderful thing to have uh, to be a poet. So she's sensitive, and she can put things into words. And I think that's something to uh, <laughs> recommend her for. And um, her latest book, uh, book is Mosaic, New and Collected Poems. And uh, she is also a visual artist as well as a writer. And she also writes prose you know, novels. So she's very diverse and creative. Uh, and we're going to benefit from all of that. <laughs> even if we don't see any paintings. <laughs> and so I welcome Robin Lisney. Hi. It's nice to see friends and neighbors here. This is so great. Um, uh, I have two books that I'm going to be reading from tonight. The first book is called Poems for the Lost Deer. And it was a compilation of poetry that I did um, after an incident in 2008 where masses of deer were slaughtered by our National Park Service. I mean, 1,050 of them. And they were systematically slaughtered because they were labeled invasive species. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't let go 
the fact that our, our culture does this too. So um, I married a lot of voices in this po poetry book, and uh, so I'm going to be reading the first poems out of that. And the second is Mosaic Nude Collected. And um, I usually start at the front, but I'm going to start at the back this time <laughs> and read some poems from there. So uh, Poems for the Lost Deer started with this poem that I wrote many years ago. And it had a drawing that went with it that's here. <laughs> I tucked a tuft into my hat, laying down strands of hair in exchange. An old Indian song rose up in my throat, Palamyayo, Palamyayo. Thank you, thank you, Creator. Wanka Tonka, Tokaheya, Shewahielo. Tufts of their fur lay at my feet. Seven white deer appear grazing on a hillside. An apparition? Their presence answers. Their gaze at me, going back to grazing. Just after asking for a sign, is riding my path. After fasting for two days, walking those hills, rounding the corner of a yellow trail. So this book uh, was my thesis at Mills when I was doing my MFA. And uh, the bad part about doing an MFA in your 50s is uh, that you pay for student loans into your retirement. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> it was a great opportunity. I'm really glad I did it. Uh, this book gathers together voices of different factions that, the, that represent the deer, represent the people against and for the, the, uh, the thing that went on for many, many, many months up there for years, actually. It was a culmination of years of protests. People were protesting against it. Eighty percent were against the slaughter. And uh, so I felt the one voice that was missing were the deer. So... This poem is from them. We have been roaming these green hills as long as any of us remember. How many generations of dear people must be born before all beings know we belong here? Um, these deer were brought to Point Reyes National Seashore by... Um, a man who uh, was a doctor, and he had a farm. He had a ranch out there. I'm from the Midwest, so I say farm. And um, uh, he brought them out there to hunt them, but also to take them off the hands of the zoo, uh, San Francisco Zoo. So I thought that was interesting <laughs> because the political factions were really pressed uh, out there. So this was question number two for a park ranger. What are the management factions? Did I say all management is political? Scientists say our data shows we need so much water for logging, fisheries, wildlife. Politicians say we need to cut trees for jobs, houses, imports. So they take a hundred feet along streams and rivers, 
do they really need that much land? Loggers just take anyway. Fines not big enough to offset trees. Ranchers say, don't let the wolves, bears, mountain lions kill my cows, pigs, sheep. Then there are the tourists, just passing through with boats, RVs, trailers. Did I say all management is political? Did I say I protect the park from people? People from people. January 31st, 2008. This is really recent. <laughs> so that's why it's also kind of shocking. Then the hunters came. Metal hellbirds overhead. 800 to 80. All our males dead. She hears us. She who sent us hears these shots too. We sing our shrill death cry for them. We sing our ghost dance for the fallen. After the massacre, some deer were seen in the sky joining the Milky Way. Some entered their hunters' bodies, lives shortened, lives taken in restitution. So say the Lenape people. Um, some people want to know why I, as a white woman, can talk about the Native people, and it's because I've earned it. Um, I'm a sun dancer and also an Akichidai Kwe. I've danced with Native people for 25 years and had a sweat lodge. And um, so I have a very strong empathy for Native Americans and uh, the plight that they've been through. So you'll, sh you'll find that in my writing all over the place. Um, so now I'm going to read some from Mosaic. Uh, it's very hard not to start with this first poem because it's called First Step. Beginnings are sometimes foggy. The path is not always clear. The end of one begats another. To begin, put one foot in front of the other. Your foot knows where to land. The one that moves forward first. Forget about the best foot. Just put it out there. Stop traffic if you have to. Go home if that is where it leads you. Go back to work if that is where your foot falls. You don't have to go anywhere. Just rest. After you step, take another Forget about the weather. Step. Step again. A lot of us uh, at my age are dealing with parents that are failing, and um, of course I'm no different. This one's called Premonition 3. The picture you sent... A catch sailing off into the early orange night, black clouds darkening, all but your single boat. Remind me that your 87 years are strong yet waning. 
Your soul longs for the sunset, your Viking ship farewell. In my heart, I hand you a rose. I wish you the best, Dad. Odd how Mom did the same, announced her death with sunset painting, hers by the lake and dark trees, making a kaleidoscope to the end of the water. My sisters know, too, and we are giving out our whereabouts just in case of emergency. He lived to 99, so we waited a while. <laughs> One of the things I deal with a lot as a medium is that I deal with death. <laughs> and it's actually quite a joyful thing to deal with, ironically. But um, uh, one of the things I've done is I've worked with hospice groups here in Santa Cruz. And um, uh, the hardest one I did was a kid's grief group. So this is... This poem is about that. It's called Grief Group. The children float together after their tsunami has struck. They float and stare at the sun, gazing up, looking towards heaven. Some roll over like fish and search the bottom for answers. They drift with the tides. All day they float, asking why. They swim to this boat, still no answers. Then one child ties a message to her grandparents on a balloon. Another sends a whole painting, folded up, ties it on tight, and releases the balloon to a father somewhere up and up. Every night we close the circle in the same way wait for parents to come, join hands. Someone starts a love squeeze until it's passed all around the circle, making our raft. This is a book is mosaic, and it is a collection of um, different, whole different things of my life. And one of the things... I really love his music, and uh, classical music in particular. And I got that from my dad, who was a classical music freak and had it playing 24-7 when I was growing up, so I guess it had some influence. This is Denil, Dennis Russell Davies conducting Dvorak, Symphony Number no. 8 in G, Opus 88. He rattles his baton and gathers together the warp and weft of the symphony. Now he smooths the withers of his horse, punches bread dough and divides it, stirs storm clouds and releases the thunder and the rain. In the second movement, he rocks an infant to sleep, now sows Belgium lace, casts a handful of seeds, thrashes wheat then gathers the grain to taste of it. Now he strokes his beloved's face, embraces an old friend, and scolds his son. Finally, from between the webbing of his fingers, he draws out a single thread on a spindle. He thins it and weaves the clouds together. Then he presents the steaming hot loaf on a table set with a vase of calla lilies. 
all this without a score, drawn from the bones of the maestro. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in rites, is, is rites of passage. Um, rites of passage is not known a lot in our culture. It's gotten better over the last 30 years, but uh, my first master's was on kids and rites of passage for teens and boys in particular. And so this poem reflects this. It's called Rite of Passage. Waves lapping in the channel bathing the young male whale, bathing the kayaks that swim around him. It is not unusual for whales to be seen on these shores, but for one to come into the harbor at the moment a father and son are reassessing their life together, at the moment when the father says, I release my burden of carrying your part of this relationship. I release it to you because today I see that you are a man. At that very moment, the whale surfaces, displays its broad tail, dives in slow motion back under the brine, right where the two were walking on the jetty. And here they are now, man and man, walking together as the young whale sounds. <laughs> This is uh, one of my favorite poems. I don't know why. <laughs> I think maybe it's all the imagery that's in it, but in the first edition of this book, uh, I put it in twice, so <laughs> of course I had to edit that, but anyway. It's called Generations Fly Before Us. You have to see in three dimensions when we slice through meringue dive through the silent white cathedrals. Our wings, like spatulas, shave through the puffs of potential thunderheads. Flaps lift and tilt our trajectory just enough to aim down the canal of clouds, glide along the broad thigh of Lake Michigan into Chicago, our destination. Above the airstrip, generations of tiny lights hold hundreds of people, suspend like fireflies over broad strips of concrete. Although runway lights are white, not yellow, we home in just as drawn to our destiny like the male mate of a female lighted fly. As though let out of a jar, 134 passengers scatter into the suburbs. Each trails behind them stories from Viking wanderlust to slavery, gospel choirs to silent vigils, drunkards and angry mothers absorbed into city blocks, coiled and uncoiled like chromosomes. How are you all doing out there? <laughs> so this one is um, uh, when we when we deal with our parents, you know, it's it's such a dance, isn't it? And um, 
And my mother and I were very much alike. She was, she was highly intuitive. She saw spirits and ghosts like I did since I was a little kid. And uh, so we would compare notes in church and say, hey, you see the one behind the minister? And my dad would be going, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> and we also were both artists. And so this was um, a poem I wrote for her while she was uh, in her last stages of pancreatic cancer. It's called Sketches. Nothing will stop cancer from killing my mother, except today the way she talks to the birds while adding a hint of red-orange to the cheek of the Chinese baby whose portrait she draws. What will heal her soul are those moments as she lays on her pillow and goes into the garden of her heart to visit herself there, the way I taught her to go in, to prune the vines, to meet anyone she needs to complete with what is required. I can hold her hand and help her separate flower from thorn, scribe memories for her grandchildren, sketch our versions of chickadees together. I have traveled across country to see them through this, and tonight my parents are out with friends, so I dine alone with mom's cups and saucers, sit in her chair, slip on her sweater, wonder how many days exactly remain to save her. S-A-P-O-R. Huh? S-A-P-O-R. S-A-P-O-R, yes. Saber, yes. Um, this is a poem I wrote for um, a, another local writer. <laughs> but he's not just local. It's for Stan Rushworth. It's called Brave. He stood at the podium, holding onto it to steady his palsied shaking. Then, like a sun dancer, he bore his chest to be pierced, chanting his poem prayer to the earth for us to wake up to her sacred body. As the elder medicine man, he called in wind, earth, fire, water. He invoked the very power as it rained gently outside in response. He called out to all of us. She is yours to care for. Then he said somewhere in the chanting to the young ones, she is your mother too, take hold. Then he closed his eyes as he read the incantation his spirit hand brushing over her muddy body. He placed her markings on his own face, over his brow and his cheeks, a line on his chin. He ended the way he started, releasing the four directions, giving thanks for the fire, earth, water, air, calling to wind. As he finished, he stood at the podium firmly, not shaking, eyes closed, humming her praise, as though it was his last med message to us, wings sprouting from his arms to rise. Okay, so there's love poems in here too, so. <laughs> this one is called Etheriate. Tonight you are invisible. Come through the walls on your own uninvited. Tonight I am weak, 
don't have the heart to kick you out. I want you here regardless of my resistance. We curl and uncurl for hours. You are a crow, an owl, a cat, silent yet felt. Tonight is an infusion, a territory, an explosion, hand on hand on bodies. How singular the beaten tapestry night, feathers fly and sleepless pillow beating. The actions of the day are an unwound wing. How is it you are here and not here? Did I pull you in, or have you come again over my protestations? You come through my dreams. We discuss everything. You are still here by morning. As you get up and walk through and away, you say, I will see you later. I don't believe you. Can't believe you. The scent of you is still in my bed. Your invisibility lingers all morning. So I'm sharing some poems I haven't shared in other readings, which is kind of fun. Um, this one is called Carrion Hunters. We drive a long way until farms spring up and fences run along the road, dividing field from cattle. My mother drives while I scout. It feels slightly illegal. You will spot their dark, round heads bobbing. There, she stops. I fly out of the car with snippers in hand. A long branch bends towards the ground, woven into the fence. Tendrils with curled leaves and blue-black balls of fruit bob on slender stems. This is the prize named for the odor they emit when they flower, carrion weed dead carcasses of rotting flesh, the odor gone by autumn, hungry bees have done their work. These vines hold a graceful fascination of branch-to-branch -branch thoughts, blue heads against white walls, tendrils spiraling out, dried leaves all but removed in a careful plucking ceremony, the stem hard and bare as a bone, Archie. You're going to have to tell me when to, <laughs> two poems or one poem or whatever, I'm not keeping track of the time very well. Okay. This one is called Silver Thread. And when I, um, Silver Thread is, um, well, you'll hear what it's about, but but the uh, the idea is that nature heals us, and um, I feel that it does. And many of you know that already. But uh, this, to me, was an actual experience of it. I heard their honking first, a flock of something, rolling beyond, looking up to pale blue skies, a shimmering string. Now, too, break over gnarled branches of spidery oaks. So far away, I cannot count them. These geese are ducks, perhaps snow geese, with their white wings, their arrow shapes. Two silver ribbons turn in the sun. 
Now a red tail or eagle soars higher with them or below. I cannot tell who it is, what it is, just its span larger than two of them. Perhaps their furious warnings keeps the talons curled and not extended for one of them. They furl and twist, one string sheltering the other. Suddenly the great bird takes a different course. I notice the shadow is pulled out of me. I remain transfixed by these shining strings, their secret display, and I'm pure silver inside when they disappear as I glance away. This one, um, I'm going to do two more. <laughs> this one's called Wolf Medicine. And um, in Native traditions, many Native traditions, when you see an animal in the wild, it's your medicine, and you get it. It's yours. But you have to earn it. You have to figure out a way, like, how do I incorporate that? So um, this is called Wolf Medicine. And sometimes it can come in visions and dreams. It doesn't have to actually come in of physical form. You lay in the snow. This is called wolf medicine. You lay in the snow and ink spill, yet occasionally twitch with your yellow-eyed stare. Your ears are black void cones, herring every mouse nibble, snowflake fall. You hear trees creak in my ragged breath. Your fur is dark as a raven's wing. So thick, cold snow does not penetrate. The brush of your tail sweeps the snow once where you lie. Flurries dust lace around your patient face. Your fangs hide within your closed jaws. Playing or hunting, I cannot tell. Our eyes lock. There's no way out. You are my medicine. We make our pact. <laughs> Thanks. This one is um, the last one I'll read tonight, and it's called Jasmine Pearl. And I, you can all guess where this is. <laughs> Jasmine Pearl. Enter the tea house where burls of maple slabs have made, been made into tables the tops carved and polished. Hot water is poured over the Buddha by the server, over the cup to warm it as it swirls down a hidden drain, match maple shimmer. The steaming cup in my hand is full of fragrance. As I sip the tea, inhale the scent, I see in my cup a woman from a small Chinese village whose job it is to lay out flower petals over leaves to infuse them over and over. She then rolls these very green tea leaves carefully into pearls, hundreds of pearls an hour. Snapshots of her unwind with the fragrance. Her labor is inhaled with the jasmine scent. I taste her anger and her love feel her longing. I taste mine too. We are awash in a hot sea of flowers, a sea between, a sea of longing. We are awash in a sea of hot love. Thanks.
Thank you. So, Dane, where is Dane? Dane will introduce Garrett Hango for us. Oh, and by the way, our poets have agreed to a Q&A after the reading, so stick around. We're um, so pleased to uh, have Garrett Hongo read for us tonight. Um, I love the town he was born in, Volcano, Hawaii. Um, growing up on the North Shore of Oahu and in Los Angeles, um, Garrett was educated at Pomona College, University of Michigan, UC Irvine, where he received his MFA. And as you can tell, he has a, um, a lot of books here that we invite you to peruse um, afterwards. He's a prolific poet. Some of his work includes uh, Coral Road Poems, Volcano, A Memoir of Hawaii, and The Mere Diary, Selected Essays, which was just published last summer. If you'd like to see um, recent poems of his that are um, forthcoming or have appeared in magazines such as the Harvard Review, Poetry, New England Review, Kenyon Review, um, and Plume. His honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Fulbright Fellowship to Italy, how marvelous, uh, two NEA grants, and the Lamont Poetry Prize from the Academy of American Poets. Um, he teaches at the University of Oregon, where he is the Distinguished Professor of Arts and Sciences. And to borrow a couple of lines from a poem of his called I Got Heaven, he may take us tonight where souls that twirl like kites lash to the wrists of the living and spirits who tumble in a solemn limbo between 164th and the long river of stars to a meter's paradise in the west. Um, we're very glad to entertain tonight Garrett. Please welcome him. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank, thank you all for welcoming me. I, um, I've been in the store once before, I think about 20, 25 years ago, just browsing. And there might have been a porch reading I was ignoring. Um, which now I feel very guilty about. Um, I'm just going to read around a little bit. I'll, I'll read some old, I'll read some new. Here's one that's set in California nearby. Um, but in, in it, I travel back to Hawaii. And um, I'll just read it. It's called Mendocino Rose. Actually, there's a rose that grows in Mendocino County, California. Um, I think it's called California Rosicus. And uh, there's only one other place in the world that it grows. It grows in Volcano Hawaii. And... Um, I was driving up Highway 1 about, uh, I don't know, six months after my father passed away, and I recognized the flower, you know, and uh, kind of hit me sideways. So this is called Mendocino Rose. In California, north of the Golden Gate, the vine grows almost everywhere erupting out of pasture land from under the shade of eucalyptus by the side of the road, overtaking all the ghost shacks and broken fences crumbling with rot and drenched in the fresh rains. It mimes in its steady cloud-like replicas the shape of whatever it smothers, a gentle greenery trellis up the side of a barn or pump station, 
far up the bluffs above Highway 1. Florets and blossoms, from the road anyway, looking like knots and red dreadlocks, ephemeral and glorious, hanging from overgrown eaves. I've been listening to a tape on the car stereo, a song I play and rewind and play again, a ballad or a love song sung by my favorite tenor, a Hawaiian man known for his poverty and richness of heart, and I felt wheeling through the vine-like curves of that coastal road, sliding on the slick asphalt through the dips and in the S-turns and breaking just in time, that it would have served as the dirge I didn't know to sing when I needed to, a song to cadence my heart and its tuneless stammering. Hippolemanu, he sang, without confusion, I send these garlands, and the roses seem everywhere around me then, profuse and luxurious as the rain in its gray robes, undulant processionals over the land, echoes in snarls of extravagant color, of the music and the collapsing shapes they seemed to triumph over. Um, the song I refer to is a lament written by Chief Escapiolani for King David Kalakawa, who died in San Francisco on the end of a world tour and was not able to return home. Here's something for um, those of you who know Volcano, back on the Big Island, a village where I was born. Um, it, uh, it's really unusual for me in the sense that it's highly, what's the word, spiritual and um, unsarcastic. Uh, it, for some reason, just writing about it kind of stripped me of all my LA-ness, you know? And uh, I, I couldn't, like, fuck with it much. So and this is a poem that emerges out of deep sincerity, which is a highly unusual experience for me. I, I hope each of you has that someday. Um, I'm glad I had it once. <laughs> it's called Volcano House. And there's a hotel up there called Volcano House, but that's what not, not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about a sermon that Matsu Basho gave uh, before he died, that the soul is uh, a burning house from which it is trying to flee. And it just so happens that Halemaumau, the volcano at the top of Kilauea, uh, is the house of fire. Mists and the lantern ferns. If, if, it's okay to laugh, by the way. Any time that the sincerity just overwhelms you and you can't handle it, you know, I always do when I laugh, when I read this poem. I don't read it that much. That's why. Mists and the lantern ferns, green wings furled against the cold, and a mountain wind starts its low moan through ohia trees. The lava land blazes in primrose and thimbleberry, scented fires of pink and blue, racing through jungled underbrush. I'm out feeding chickens, slopping a garbage of melon seeds and rind over the broken stones and wood rot to the forest path. I'm humming a blues, some old song about China nights and boarding a junk, taking me from my village. 
miles in the distance. Kilauea steams and vents through its sulfurous roads, and a yellow light spills through a fault line in the clouds, glazing the slick beaks of the feeding chickens, shining in their eyes like the phosphorus glow from a cave tunneled miles through the earth. What was my face before I was born? The white mask and black teeth at the bottom of the pond? What is the mind's insensible, the gateless gate? Through overgrowth and the leaning drizzle, through the pile and dump of tree fern and the indigo snare of Lassandra shedding its collars of sadness by the broken fence, I make my way down a narrow path to the absolute and the house of my last days, a dazzle of light scripting in the leaves and on the weeds, tremors in the shivering trees. Nobody laughed. It's, it's weird. The, the poem always cracks me up. It's so uncharacteristic, you know. Um, just because I did that ultra-sincere poem, i got to read some prose about L.A. This is from um, uh, my this book called The Mirror Diary. It came out last summer from the University of Michigan. And um, it's kind of like a compendium of stuff. Maybe I'll just read two short things from it, but one here now. It's about L.A. You know, every time I get a little too Hawaii, i gotta, I got to chase it with some L.A. because it doesn't feel real. You know, this is called Working for the DWP. You know what the DWP is, right? It's the Department of Water and Power. Basically, they own you. They own Los Angeles because they own, they own also the Owens Valley, you know. Anyway, water, ch- Chinatown. <laughs> I did a little dialogue on Chinatown with a film critic just this past winter. It was very interesting. She, she thought it was a masterpiece. I said, you like all those slant-eyed jokes? Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I was just speaking in terms of film history. I'm talking about slant-eyed history, man. You know? Okay, working for the DWP. <laughs> I better not say anything anymore. <laughs> Every summer between school years while I was in college, I worked as a seasonal meter reader for the Department of Water and Power of the city of L.A. This meant that I spelled regular workers over the summer months so that they could take their vacations, about two weeks long each. (laughs) They really gave them a lot of time off. (laughs) As there was uh, an entire pool of meter readers, this meant I worked throughout the summer months. My job was to walk a given route each day, taking me through just about every neighborhood in L.A., from the Owens, uh, the Van Owen Reservoir to the San Fernando Valley, to the loading docks and canneries on Terminal Island in San Pedro, and make readings of the electric and water meters. I walked the Chicano neighborhood in the hills around Dodger Stadium and read water meters buried in the dirt. I strode briskly through neighborhoods in Watts where I saw children walking pet cockroaches on makeshift leashes of thread and string. I've had a shotgun trained on me through a peephole. A policeman sweep his sidearm past me, tracking a fleeing thief. And Dobermans and German shepherds and Rottweilers pursuing me, foaming at the mouth. I read meters throughout the Hollywood Hills and saw a beautiful rock star, naked, walking her pet Afghan hounds around her spacious backyard, Carol King. (laughs) I read George Harrison's meters. I read James 
Jones's meters. I read the meters at the Hollywood Bowl. If you lived in L.A. at that time, I likely read your meters too. Well, I was always on the move, speed walking from meter to meter, jumping fences, leaping over brick walls, cutting through a whole residential street's worth of backyards. I still had a lot of time to think. And what I thought about entailed a kind of rhyming, spurring the experience of hard, blue-collar work against my liberal arts college courses in Shakespeare, British and American Romanticism, Chinese and Japanese literature, and the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein. What I didn't want to do was isolate one experience from the other. What I wanted was to join my life, one of work along the wide and narrow avenues of L.A., to the great voices I was hearing in my head as I traipsed in 95-degree heat up a long hill full of apartment houses, dodging children and dog shit along the sidewalks. They flee from me who sometime did me seek would echo in my mind as I glanced from behind a lavish bush of jasmine flowers and its redolent scent carried on an ocean breeze over a magnificent patch of the aquamarine Pacific pitching in cowlicks of waters below me. On a given day, I take my lunch in a park I'd spotted on my route, opening up my sack of sandwiches, chips, and cut cucumbers and carrots. I'd have time for gazing deeply from under the mottled shade of a big-leaf maple tree out toward the end of whatever block to a confusion of billboards, street traffic, fast food joints, and the sheen of yellow and brown along the belly of sky above them. I'd see past these to Othello, standing under stars, raging in his folly, to Ophelia, recumbent in a coffin of pond water, to lunatic Whitman, yawping in ecstatic praise for all our peoples under democratic vistas. I had that job over five or six summers. I liked it. It gave me a rhythm for my thoughts. It gave me the acquaintance of all of Los Angeles and its harbor. It gave me the start to all further ramblings and the ground notes to a barbaric song of knowings to come. This is um, from the last book of poems I published, the most recent. It's called Coral Road. Um, Maybe uh, instead of talking about it, I'll just read the poem. It sort of explains why the book is called Coral Road. Um, There's a reference to a French named beach here, San Susi in Waikiki. It's named that because the growers, the planters, the sugar barons of the islands needed some kind of fancy-ass name that wasn't Hawaiian so that they could put their families there, you know. And so it's called San Susi Beach. And everybody always goes, what the f-, you know, is that about? I say, it's called colonization, motherfucker. <laughs> Coral Road. I keep wanting to go back across an ocean, blue-gray and uncaring, white cowlicks of waves at the continental shore, 
than the mid-sea combers like white centipedes far below the jet liner that takes me there. And across time, too, to 1920 and my ancestors fleeing Wailua Plantation, trekking across the northern coast of Oahu, that whole family of first Shigemitsu walking in Geta and sandals along railroad ties and old roads at night, sleeping in the bushes by day, Ha'alelehana, runaways from the labor contract with Baldwin or American factors. My grandmother, 10 at the time, hauling an infant brother on her back, said there was a white coral road in those days, pieces of crushed reef poured like gravel over the brown dirt and at night with the moon up, as it was those nights during their flight, silver shadows on the sea. It lit their path like a roadway made of dust from the ocean of clouds. Tsukinomichi is what they called it, the moon road from Wailua to Kahuku. There is little to tell, and few enough to tell it to. A small circle of relatives gathered for reunion at some beach barbecue or Elks Club veranda in Waikiki, all of us having survived that plantation sullenness and two generations of labor in the sugar fields, having shared most all memory of travail and the shame of upbringing in the clabbered shotguns of ancestral poverty. Who else would even listen? Where is the Virgil who might lead me through the shallow underworld of this history? And what demurge can I say call to them, loveless ones, through twelve score stands of cane, chittering like small birds, nocturnal harpies, in the feral constancies of wind. All is diffuse, like knowledge at dusk, a veiled shimmer in the sea as schools of baitfish boil and revolve in their iridescent globes, turning to the olive dark and a drop-off back to depth below, where they shiver like silver penitents, a cloud of thin summer moths, while rains chill the air and pockmark the surface of the sands at Sanssouci, and we scatter back to a humble Chinese buffet and cool sushi spread on melamine platters on a starched white ribbon of shining cloth. I'll read um, In the middle of the book, there's a sequence of letters um, epistles, sort of verse epistles. Um, I write in the voice of my maternal grandfather, who was incarcerated for about three and a half years during World War II. It wasn't with the um, evacuation from Executive Order 9066. Before that came out, starting in February 1942 through May of 1942, there was a roundup of community leaders in December and January after Pearl Harbor, where they took away basically the Japanese-American uh, intelligentsia, journalists, um, accountants, doctors, attorneys, um, school teachers, and in Hawaii, shopkeepers. Um, my grandfather sponsored Japanese aliens as school teachers to come over and teach the language to the plantation kids. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a storekeeper, he had um, a shortwave radio and guns and ammo. So he got hauled off for a while. Um, he spent most of the time in a prison on the Navajo Nation in Arizona. 
It's a fact that was part of me for most of my teenage life, ever since he told me the stories. But I never could do anything with it except pay homage in oblique ways to uh, his memory. And um, all, I was in Italy one summer, and all of a sudden it just hit me how to do it. Um, one of the things that as a poet you're you know, asked to do, of course, is to represent, right? It becomes a very complicated task when your history is complicated. It becomes a very complicated ta- task when you know things. It's better not to know shit, and you can really write really good poems. Um, but if you know too much, you, you know, you're a fiction writer, or a nonfiction writer. You, you can't write poetry like that. This is anyway what my workshops told me in undergraduate school in the MFA. You know, you're too complicated, Garrett. Well, it's just a stick for one little thing, you know. Write about fortune cookies or something, just like everybody else. You know? Why don't you write haiku? Yeah. There's your tradition. You know what I mean? And um, um, so here I was with this ancestor who was incarcerated for many years unjustly. And I'm reading the poetry of Tadeusz Rojevich, the great poet, freedom fighter. I'm reading Czesław Milos, you know, about the resurrection of Western civilization after World War II in Poland. I'm reading Pablo Neruda, Cesar Vallejo. I'm reading, you know, great poets. And trying to square all these cubes of information, fact, and shattered feelings with what I know. So what I decided to do was to pretend my grandfather wrote letters to all the great poets of incarceration during the 20th century. He writes to um, Miguel Hernandez, who dies in a prison in Madrid at the hands of the fascists uh, in Spain. He writes to Tadeusz Rojevich, he writes to Neruda, and he writes to the Chinese poets detained on Angel Island. So I'll read that to you. And most of you don't need any explanation about that, so you know about the poetry that was carved into the walls and barracks and bedposts on Angel Island by these detainees. This is dedicated to the memory of him, Mark Lai, the scholar at University of um, Cal State University of San Francisco, who first translated these poems into English. Kubota, uh, my grandfather's name was Kubota. In Japanese, it would be Kubota, but in Hawaii, you don't say it like that. You say Kubota. Kubota, the Chinese poets detained on Angel Island. My geography does not match yours, surrounded by the bay and the city so close by, you can see it from the hill of island. I'm in the middle of an ancient sea, raised up out of water to make a dusty land of red and pink rock, yellow cliffs, and snow peaks far from the great ocean you crossed from your home villages. But we spend our days alike, gazing at bare walls, composing poems to carve them, to carve on them, bedding down at night, to the whistling of wind through bars and barracks. When the moon shines and insects chirp under our bunks, grief and bitterness wrap around us like cold winding sheets and we rage against the whites and the promises this land made to us it would be a heaven of gold mountains. Hard living through confinement, our families not near, 
interrogators trying to catch us in stories that do not match your immigration, what your immigration papers say, that do not match lies informants have said about me. Can you remember how many steps to the duck pond? How many houses were south of the village well? Which order brother died in the year of the ox? They asked me about the ink stone and the radios in my house the FBI took on December 8th, about the military school I attended in Hiroshima, though I was born in U.S. like them. We tried to act bravely, as we were taught, chest full of blood, but we are not heroes. The wild geese of the bay echo your cries, the coyotes mimic mine, and only ghosts escape these places rising from the cold bodies of men who hang like butchered meat in the lavatories, pale lights shining through the thin gauze of their clothes. They will see their families, but only from the clouds. I pity them, but share my dreams with you, poets of Ireland, trapped beneath the guard towers of history. When they ask you your brother's name, say, it is Kubora. When they ask me what light attracts the fish at night, I will answer the light of angels from island. When they ask what fish come to the light, I will say, a fish that swims the river of heaven. Here's that poem that was quoted um, It's an L.A. poem. It's a Gardena poem where I grew up. Um, it's about Bonodori, you know. It's a, you know, there's one in Santa Cruz, I believe. Um, there's one in Watsonville, or there used to be. And it's basically a Buddhist dance party at night. Um, the, 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 it comes from uh, Pure Land Buddhism which says that if you circumambulate the, uh, 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 what's it called? The odoriza, counterclockwise, each time you go around is one less year that a soul has to exist in the limbo between incarnation and complete extinction in nirvana. It's about expiation and release of souls. But really, really, it's an excuse to get down, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's about in Gardena you dig Gardena is in South Bay LA it's like it was mainly Japanese American and right next to it is Torrance which was mainly white when I grew up and then on the other side was Compton you know so it was a very interesting place uh, and then during Bonatori everybody would come you know and we liked that it's called I Got Heaven I swear that in Gardena, on a moonlit suburban street, there are souls that twirl like kites, lashed to the wrists of the living, and spirits who tumble in a solemn limbo between 164th and the long river of stars to Amida's paradise in the west. As though I belonged, I have come from my life of papers and exile to walk among these penitents at the festival of the dead, the booths full of sellers hawking rice cakes and candied plums. All around us, the rhythmic chant of Mignot 
bursting through loudspeakers, calling out the mimes and changes to all who dance. I stop at a booth and watch a man, deeply tanned from work outdoors, pitching bright, fresh quarters into blue plastic bowls. He wins a porcelain cat, a fishnet bag of marbles, then a bottle of shoyu, and a rattle shaped like a tam-tam he gives to a child. I hear the words of a Motown tune carrying through the gaudy air. Got sunshine on a cloudy day. Got the month of May. As he turns from the booth and re-enters the river of heaven, these dancers winding in brocades and silk sleeves, a faith-lit circle, briefly a swarm in the summer night. So, um, I have a diptych, and I'm only going to read you one side of it. There are two elegies, one's from my father, um, who passed away in 1984, and then my mother, who passed away um, just last year. And the, um, the pivot, the hinge on the diptych, is her makeup vanity, a little shelf in front of a mirror in our tract home in Gardena. This is um, called Her Makeup Face. There were years at her bedroom vanity, daubing on makeup, fussing with clips and brushes, a clamp for eyelashes, a phalanx of powder jars and perfume bottles, assembled like the glassy face of a wave standing over a box of Kleenex. She'd paint on lipstick, then blot the excess with a fold of pink tissue pressed between her lips, pulling pins and a net from her hair, grabbing up her purse and high-heeled shoes, almost ready to step up the tiered flights of the city hall stairs and the long day's work bossing the typists and clerk twos. How long was this her life, composed or grudging amidst the clatter of machines, the pouches and memos that swelled like a tide of incoming blather each day, she stood at her desk, commending Stella Sue from Memphis, Elena from Jalisco, and Kay, short for Keiko, from Boyle Heights. How many times must she have thought of flowers floating in a tree, archipelagos of plumeria buoyed on their branches as a soft onshore wind brought the scent of the sea to the subtropical pieta of a mother and her newborn wrapped in blue flannels in her arms as she sat on a torn grass mat on the lawn by the browning litter of blooms beneath a skeletal tree by a bungalow in Kahuku. In her last illness, while lying comfortably in her bed in the semi-private room of the care center in Carson, California, her mind and lifelong rage sweetened by the calm of forgetfulness. She said she wanted to go back, that it was a good place, and she'd like living there again. Ripe mangoes and guava tastes every day, she said, and everybody knows you, your family best. She spoke in pigeon like this, without demands. No fusillades of scorn, nor admonishments like I'd gotten steadily since childhood, the torch of discontent that had lit a chronic, rancorous facade, had doused itself in the calm waters of a late-life lagoon 
that caught her in its tidal fingers and captured her moonlike face so that when she gazed upon me those last days, she did not scowl but smiled, her tyrannous visage made plain, beatific, without blemish of pain or artifice. Uh, I'm just going to read um, two more. Um, then we can uh, talk story, as they say. Um, here's a here's a poem to make the young people gasp, man. I was at uh, a rise conference in Vermont last summer, and I I read the title of this poem, and there was this <laughs> from the audience. It was really the, the, the strongest reaction I invoked that night. I'm very proud of it. It's called 66. And I wrote it in France, so, you know, that's what it's all about. Turquoise and aquamarine slowly pitching against the limestone cliffs, and I'm hearing teenage boys whoop and scream as they leap from the jetty to the cool waters under the lighthouse tower of Port de Cassis. I'm in France, alone with my words on fine laser paper, page proofs of my essays, written over 20 years' time, earnest and straining to be eloquent, honest, I think, in their desire to praise song and the soft inner voice of calm, like the brilliantine waters, patchy with indigo, streaks of viridian, and powdered temperas of azurite under the sub-infinite of Cap Canai, cutting like a cruise ship across the horizon. A pleasure boat chugs through the slick of channel out to sea, thrumming up a V-wash of wake trails, where the black shadows of stones look up from the bottom like the upturned faces of drowned cadavers that refuse blessings of the light. The angling rock beneath the red-tipped tower of a warning siren jutting out over the sea to the left of where I sit smoking a Robusto in Camargo's terrace reminds me of the lava promontory Laia Point somehow. A day over 30 years ago I spent with Kawaharada, conjuring old Hawaiian voyagers who found the islands by star map and the prophecies of wind and easterly currents from Tahiti. We gazed up the shore from Punalu, Paskaava, and Kahalu, coconut palms, A-frames, and bilibili along the beaches, and let our hearts wander over the past centuries before the first landfall and paid homage to the first canoe that came by star. Now I hear the plosive, soft cannonade of a wave against a hollow in the cliffside and the ratcheting drone of cicadas among the rosemary and scrubs of pine around me. A tour guide's amplified spiel drifts over to me from a boat out at sea, and the pale zodiac of history murmurs back in a crumple of waves. My life gathers its pieces in a mosaic of cadmium and regret. All I've lost to the negative space of my days, a faint warble of diminishment amidst the glories of promise laid out beneath me like a sail of many colors fallen upon the waters, furling with every turn of sorrow and faint shrouds of a ghostly current. Okay, so... I'll just close by reading something from Coral Road. Um, 
it's a dramatic monologue in the voice of a Japanese American musician who plays the blues. Um, most of you don't know that during the um, early 19th century, Hawaii produced a lot of blues, uh, played it on um, resonator guitars. And this is before slack key, uh, before Tin Pan Alley, hula music, you know, because they learned it from the, the black uh, uh, deckhands that came on the steamships who brought their music and their instruments to the islands. And it kind of put together with the cowboy music of the Portuguese and uh, Spanish paniolos, you know, the cowboys, and the Puerto Rican um, king workers who brought San Antuno and Son to the islands as well. Um, so there was all this incredible fervency of stuff. And um, out of it came a lot of songs, you know, um, that you don't hear anymore. Um, but you, what you don't know is that African-American jazz musicians heard them when they first started playing. So there are recordings of some of those Hawaiian songs by uh, Louis Armstrong. There's a tune that he always played with the Hot Five called Hilo March. And it's written by Joseph Ka'apea. You just look on the credit. And it's one of those early Hawaiian blues men. So um, I invented my own fucking blues man as a Japanese-American guy. And uh, I made up the story. It, he tells his own story in this. It's called An Oral History of Blind Boy, Lily Koi. Uh, Lily Koi is passion fruit. They used to make a, sh a schnapps out of it, a brandy, that you drink on stage to be cool. Coolness you know? um, is something that's highly underrated, you know, um, everybody's trying to be awkward nowadays. You know, I mean, all the young people are, are that's, that's their cool. Their cool is that they're awkward. And it, it's just awkward. <laughs> it ain't cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anybody, anybody who's young here? No, so I, I didn't offend you. There's nobody who's young here. So. <laughs> An oral history of blind boy Lily Core. I came out of Hilo on the island of Hawaii, lap steel and dobro like outriggers on either side of me. Shamisen strapped to my back as I went up the gangplank to the city of Tokyo, running inter-island to Honolulu in the big pink hotel on Waikiki, where all the work was back in those days. I bought a white linen suit on Hotel Street as soon as I landed, bought a white Panama too, and put the jacket diamonds in my hatband for luck. Of my own, I had only one song, Hilo March, and I play it everywhere, to anyone who listened walking all the way from Aloha Tower to Waikiki, wearing out my old sandals along the way. But that's okay. I go to the banyan tree on Kalakaua and play for the tourists there. Bartender no kick me out or ask for much back. Zato no pozuna. I went put on the dark glass and pretend I blind. I play the slack key, some hula, an island rag, and make the tourists laugh singing hapahaole song, half English, half Hawaiian. Come sundown, though, I had to shoot. The contract entertainers would be along, and they, no one like Manini like me, stealing the tips, cockroach the attention. I ride a trolley back to Hotel Street on Chinatown Den, change in my pocket, find a dive on Manakea and play Changalang with the Portuguese, Paniolo music with the Hawaiians, slack key with anybody, singing harmony, waiting for my chance to bring up the shamisen. 
but hardly ever was. Japanese people no come to bars and brothels like before. After a while, I give up and just play whatever. Uh, dueling with ukulele player for fun, trading lick and make ass, practicing that happy-go-lucky all the tourists seem to love. But smiling, no good for me. I like the stone face, the no emotion go show on a face, or feeling in my singing and playing instead. That's why Japanese styles suit me best, shigin and gunka, ballad about warriors and soldiers song in Japanese speech. I like the key. I like the slap and chito-san of shamisen. I feel like I galvanize and the rain go drum on me. Shake the steel, go ring inside. That's when I feel, you know. That's when I write. That's why me, I like the blues. Hear them first time from a Colombo seaman from New Orleans. He come off his ship from Hilo Bay, walking downtown in front of Hata General Store, on his way to Manono Street, looking for one crap game or play cards or something. I sitting barber shop, doing nothing but reading book. He singing, yeah? Sounding good but sad. And then he bring his funny guitar from case, all shining metal with puka holes like one poinsettia spidering over the box. Make the teen kind sound good for vibrate. Make the kind shaking a bone sound like one engine in a blood. Penetrate. He teach me all kinds of song. Feel how he said the kind slave gonna sing where you call each other from field to field. So like cane workers and rag and march and blues all make up from this black bugger from Yazoo City. Up river and aways, the blues man say. Spooky. No can forget. That's how I learned to sing. Okay, time for some questions. Who's got a question? Oh, all right. Yes, sir. I have a, a question for Mr. Hongo. And uh, I used to teach at Hawaii Craft with Gordon Bryson. Oh. A big, loving bellow from Baltimore. Well, he's brought me there twice <laughs> to HPA. Yeah. He even tried to recruit my son. Yeah, yeah. He's in, he's in Baltimore now. But, uh, I know. I told him I was coming to see you tonight, and he was really uh, excited. But uh, a couple of years ago, I was teaching uh, River of Heaven in a, in a course I was doing on literature of Hawaii, and one of the things that sent me to the, to the dictionary and other places uh, were a lot of your kind of musical references and musical language, and I was just sort of curious, it's probably more a reflection of my own ignorance than, than anything else, but um, your own kind of musical background and, and how that sort of informs your poetry and your writing. Well, I'm a frustrated um, musician. My my uh, mom discovered that I tested really well when I was in junior high school. You know, I was in uh, Boys Glee. I was studying the sl uh, Hawaiian slide guitar. And I was enjoying myself, you know. And then this test scores came by. This fucking test scores. And she canceled my music lessons. She made my father take back the electric slack. I was playing an acoustic slack key, and then he bought me a really nice cherry red... You know, 
electronic with an amplifier slack key, and I was looking forward to the next luau. I could play for all the grown-ups, you know. Made him take that back Ugh. and uh, cut it all off. And then uh, I, I was in the AP classes in science and shit like that, mathematics. You know, and then um, I go to college, man, and everybody I went to school with, they were either like, you know, they were like incredible. They're like these cellists and violists and flautists and beautiful singers. I mean, uh, some of my classmates are famous musicians. You know, they're like uh, Stephanie Soldner and, and uh, in, New, in New York. You know, they're just crazy ass. Steven Sarah in Toronto, pianist. Uh, anyway, they just did it. You know, the parents didn't think that music would be like an inhibition or inhibit them from actually becoming a doctor, a lawyer, engineer. But, you know, ignorant plantation people, they don't, you can't fuck around with music if you're going to be a doctor, so that's what happened to me. Meanwhile, I would listen to the blues, and, you know, I had all the British blues, uh, Clapton and, and John Mayall and all that kind of stuff. I'd go hear uh, the jazz guys at the Lighthouse, you know, in Hermosa Beach. I'd sneak off to Spanky's in uh, Washington to go hear Sarah Vaughan and shit like that. Oh, wow. And um, um, then my brother, a younger brother, he picks up my old guitar, that, the old fucked up Spanish guitar that I bought from Wallach's Music City. You know, it's got its bent, it's bowed and stuff. And he's, within two weeks, he can play licks from Mike Bloomfield. <laughs> you know, so he becomes a fantastic blues guitarist, my younger brother. I had bought a Gibson J50, which I tried to teach myself guitar when I was in college. I just gave it to him. Fuck it. <laughs> when I'm 20, my grandmother gives us like 500 bucks each. And she would love to see us come back to Hawaii, but she said, as only a kind Hawaiian grandmother could, you could do what you want. So I could go back to Hawaii. Change was my life. I decided to become a poet on a beach, on Oahu, looking over this, you know, Hearing all these plantation stories, I just, 20 years old, I said, I said, my brother, he buys a Les Paul Black Beauty <laughs> that he still has today. Um, so that's what happened. I, I'm just a frustrated musician. I love music. Um, I listen to a lot of classical music. I listen to, you know, I listen to a lot of music. I, you know, I'm writing a book about it right now. Yeah. So that's too long an answer, but... I just like, and plus the music has tremendous vocabulary. They have terminologies for, you know, and you might even call them rhetorical gestures and harmonic um, phenomena that you can sort of help you think more acutely about how language works. I remember a line you, you have in one of the poems in that collection about arpeggios of brain. I mean, I've never. Well, if you see the rain coming down across Ka'u Desert in Volcano, it, it's like an arpeggio, you know, because it, it, it falls in time. You can see so clearly, and you can see that the... I also have a music question. Your first uh, poem, Ruby, Mr. Hago, you said you were listening to your favorite tenor. Was that true? Or did you that? That's that? Gabi Pahinui. Mm -hmm. Gabi Pahinui. He's actually a falsetto. Um, 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 you know, so in a way, I, she, I should have said falsetto. You know, you, you know what a falsetto 
Yeah, I don't think it's as good a word for a poem. So I think ten is better. <laughs> yeah. Instead of it took too many syllables to say that. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> How do you spell his name? I'm just really Gabby uh, Pahinu, P-A-H-I-N-U-I. He's like Pops. He's the man. You know, he's like the greatest. He's like... The full dynasty of musicians. Yeah, he's like, you know, the Hank Williams of Hawaiian music. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's... I feel like shit saying the Hank Williams of Hawaiian music, but... Because he's better than Hank Williams. I was curious if you could go talk a little bit about your approach to, to writing about family. Because you both have family problems and challenges. Uh, how much do you feel comfortable um, uh, well, I write what comes up, and um, uh, I published my first poem about my father in a magazine called Porcupine. Um, I wrote it. <laughs> it's Hello. in this book. And my sister found it in Wisconsin somewhere, you know, and, I, and um, she showed it to him, and he actually liked it. But I, I don't, uh, my family is... Uh, semi-supportive, like they're supportive of me as a person, but they don't really want to read my stuff. <laughs> so that's my fail-safe. Um, this book has more about family in it than the other one, because this is more about the deer and deer and women and social justice and all kinds of stuff. Um, but I, I pretty much um, do what feels right to me. And if someone gets offended by it, that's their stuff, and, and I have my stuff around it, so I'm usually writing about my stuff, not theirs. So that's kind of how I feel, but I don't, I try not to embarrass anybody or uh, expose too much, you know, to, about them, and I think it is important for me to keep a private life, and so I do have a kind of a private thing I do with myself. Um, so that's kind of where I am. Yeah, I try to, you know, honor everyone's memory, but and then, you know, for the making fun and insulting people, I save that for family reunion, just so there won't be any misunderstandings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, no, it's the truth, man. Um, when I was 20 that summer or that winter, I went back to Oahu. I was talking about. Um, all these stories, you know, I was sort of semi-grown up, so all the grown-ups would start telling me this stuff that happened. I go to a graveyard, and uh, I see an ancestor's grave, and I look at the years she dies when she's 14. This is your grandfather's sister, my aunt says, your maternal grandfather. And I said, I didn't even know he had a sister. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. Hush, but she died so young. What happened? I look at the dates. I said, Spanish flu, you know, right around the same. Oh, no, no. Her father killed her. I said, what? Her father killed her. I said, what? What are you talking about? She sleep with one howling in a cane field song. She go, hero. Okay, let's wait here for a second, you know. She goes, oh, no, no, we got to go down to the other people. You know, my aunt, she says, they get more like that. <laughs> all these stories that I'm thinking, you know, it's all like Faulkner. Yeah. It's like he we you know he ain't got the copyright on this shit. This, this stuff is going on, and the problem is coming through the the eye of the needle of immigration. The people who have think in terms of assimilation, which is to say, three generations of my family, 
need to repress the truth or the events that are anomalous to what they consider acceptable identity. So what happens is all the narrations gets, gets, gets completely cut off. It gets untold until you get the antis liquored up. <laughs> and that's what they would, they jerk highballs and tell me all these stories. You know, and then later they would say things like, uh, my mother would say, they just make that up. I said, I don't care. <laughs> it sounds true to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I asked, uh, I was writing Volcano, which tells a lot of uh, tales out of school, you did, family history of my father's side. And I, I was kind of worried about it, which I shouldn't have been. But, you know, you, you can't help it because you grew up wanting to be middle class. Right? And you can't really shake it. It's still there. So I went to NASA, a very famous writer, elder to me, a kind of an auntie. I said, I said, you know, I'm really worried about them when this book comes out and what my family will think. And she said to me, Garrett, don't worry. Once you're famous, they'll just love it. They won't read it, but they'll just love it. <laughs> I think that um, stories are, 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 are to be told. And uh, let's see if they have legs, right? And that's the test of truth or not. It's not according to anyone's palimpsest of what truth or history is. Um, you know, for example, uh, well, just obviously, they, there's two examples. The, the history of the internment from 1942. That was totally silenced for over 40 years. Nobody could tell the story. I tried talking about it when I was in eighth grade. Teacher marching back to the room, turn my face to the ball. Whole classroom of Japanese-American kids. You know? um, then 1987 comes along. 19, it becomes a national movement. And it's, the stories are told on the floor of Congress. I was there. I was covering it. And now everybody knows that story. And it enters into the lore of, of our identities, as all of us as Americans, okay? But just go back 40 years, it was totally a censored thing. We still had the problem with slavery in the country, that people still not acknowledge that the wealth of the nation was built on the exploitation of black bodies. You did but they don't want to talk about it. They still don't want to talk about it. You know, um, you know the people love the Confederate statues, you dig. It's, it's starting to happen that they're coming down now, and some of the things are being told, but so much has already been lost. You know, um, we, Thankfully, we have storytellers like Toni Morrison, um, you know, and people who know oral history and who have collected it. And people like Zora Neale Hurston, for example. But, but I think that uh, the incredible social, cultural repression of narration is in place to flatter power and cut us off from the richness of, to read the actual variety of human experience. Um, you know, when I heard those stories from my relatives, I felt even more kinship with the people in Falkland. You know, and the multiracial people that fought there. Uh, it made me feel more American. Now, f for my family, those are only tales you tell quietly after dinner with liquor, you know, to relatives your own age. But they do get told.
Well, thank you all. Yeah. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.